Heavenly Father, we have already acknowledged that you were perfect in your every attribute. We marvel at your holy being. And yet, Father, we acknowledge that we need to know you better, and we come to you only behind the work of the Spirit of the risen Christ, hungering and thirsting for your righteousness. We ask that you would be present by your Spirit to lead us and direct us. We thank you for your word, that it is true, reliable, trustworthy, powerful to accomplish all that you intend. Please have your way with us. Please accomplish your purposes in us this day as we hear, as we listen, as we learn to live before you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before I get on, what I plan to get on, um, in, the, in the break there was a, a point raised, and, and I heard in uh, the person who was speaking about it something of a, of a frustration that in, a number, in, in some of our talking about the incomprehensibility of God, it's almost as if we're saying, well, of course we can't know God completely, and so almost the thought of, well, what's the point? I mean, if we can't know him exhaustively and perfectly, well then, why pursue? Uh, I mean, if you, um, you, wouldn't you be discouraged if you were told before you went to work Monday, sorry to mention that, but if you were going to go to work Monday, <laughs> we've got days of bliss, forget I said that. But, uh, you know, if, if someone told you, I know where you're headed, I know what you intend to do, it's not going to happen. Don't, don't kid yourself. You would be discouraged. You might be discouraged and think, well, what's the point? Why show up if I can't accomplish what I was intending to do? And I hope that none of us have that, and that attitude or that mentality with regard to the incomprehensibility of God. We are not mystics, nor are we rationalists. We believe that God has revealed himself sufficiently and that we can know him sufficiently through his word, by his spirit, in Jesus Christ. We have a sufficient knowledge of his glory and his grace and our complete need for him. We do not have an exhaustive understanding of that, and we never will. Spoiler alert. When you get to heaven, actually, it's not a spoiler alert. It's good news because, am I standing in the wrong place? Um, because you will always be growing in heaven. It is not a stagnant place. There will never be a day in heaven where you think, oh, yeah, been there, done that. Uh, it, you will be full of awe and praise and wonder. And I mention that because, so that we have to own in humility our finitude. We have to own in humility the fact that we're not going to have our God all figured out. But that is not a justification to be lazy. To say, well, I'm never going to understand him exhaustively or completely, so I'll just be a mystic and I'll just tune, tune out and just I'll, I'll, I'll be spiritual in that sense of having a, va a vague positive vibe. No. We want to hunger and thirst after the Lord. Um, we want to grow in the grace and knowledge of him. And yes, we're going to hit plenty of speed bumps where we're humbled and we, we say, I don't get it. And we should not be shocked by that. If we act shocked by that, we're being arrogant 
suggesting that we would have comprehensive knowledge of God. We've got to own in humility our finitude to adore our glorious God. So I hope none of you, as I've heard the, the, the speakers and been blessed by them, I have not heard a single one of them suggest that because God's incomprehensible, well, you know, take a break. Don't exert yourself so much. Should I not? Was it batteries? Okay. I wasn't sure if I whacked my pocket or what. But Okay. Um, anyway, just that uh, encouragement to press on. And that's kind of one. I need an overhaul. I just think it's a battery. Sounds good? Sounds good. Okay. No, no James Earl Jones, but here we are. So, again, not, not rationalists, not mystics, but humble before the living God. Learners, disciples, that's what God, our God has called us to be. Um, I wonder how many of you are familiar with... Oh, that did sound like James Earl Jones. I'm sorry. Um, I wonder how many of you are familiar with David Foster Wallace... David Foster Wallace? Granted, he's not one of the top five Puritan theologians, so that maybe that's why I'm getting a total response uh, in this. But um, he is, a, a, of late, an, uh, was an author, um, novelist, essayist. Probably his, well, his largest work, over a thousand pages, Infinite Jest. You may have heard of that. Uh, there was a recently a movie made about him called The Final Tour. Um, he is on the internet probably most famous for a commencement speech, the commencement speech. He gave it as alma mater, Kennan uh, College. And let's recognize that as a, at that time he was pretty much at the top of his game and at the top of the game of secular academia. David Foster Wallace identified himself not as a postmodernist, but as a post postmodernist. And I don't know how to exegete that. But obviously, it showed some dissatisfaction. And that comes clear in that commencement speech entitled, This is Water. Maybe you've heard that title, This is Water? No? I recommend it to you. It's about 18 minutes long. I'm sorry to say, if you take out some. Rough language, it probably would be 17 minutes. So uh, I'll give you a warning there. But it's still, I commend it to you. Because it, it's amazing, you know, um, there was a, multiple reasons why I read the passage in Mark 12. The fact that the young man, as he agreed with what Jesus said, Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom. 
And I am not going to say anything about uh, David Foster Wallace's uh, eternal estate. But he said some amazing things as a post-postmodernist. In that commencement speak, speech, he uh, gives some conventional wisdom, some, some pretty good insight. And then about two-thirds of the way through, his pace slows down and his words become more weighty. And he said, I know what you've been told, but there are no atheists. This is a secular academic in a secular college saying there are no atheists. Everyone knows something. And he said, I encourage you to worship something spiritual. And then he offered Jesus Christ, but then, sadly, he also offered Buddha and a few others. And he said, take your pick. And, there, and I guess that's what post, postmodernism is about. So there's some insight, but as we remember from, um, you've probably heard Martin Luther's statement that he who seeks God out of Christ finds only the devil. So I'm in no way commending this um, generic spirituality that Wallace is presenting here. But it stands, um, but the call nonetheless is, is amazing, for he said, if you don't worship something spiritual, you will worship something. It may be money. It may be sex. It may be beauty. It may be knowledge. And if you worship those things, they will tear you apart. If you want money, if you worship money, you will waste your life thinking only a little more. I only need a little more. Or if you worship beauty, someday you will not have that physical beauty that you had sought, and you will hate others for it, and you'll hate yourself. It'll tear you apart. Or you may worship knowledge. You may want to know more and more, but you'll feel like you never know enough and it will eat you alive. It tears you apart. And what he says there has value for you and for me. To not worship things. To worship the true living God who is spiritual. And I mentioned not only for your devotional benefit, but... Again, I think it would be valuable for some of you, at least, to hear that speech that you would have opportunity to include some of his statements in conversation with unbelieving family and friends. You could use his words. If you worship something, it will eat you alive. Only that which is spirit is worthy of adoration, true Worship. Worship that which is spiritual. Well, here we're brought to the point of asking, what's spiritual? And if we look around in our general culture, we hear about, we hear statements like, oh, she's so spiritual. And basically, you know, what that means is she's got a, basically a positive vibe, 
And uh, she looks at things, um, she's more of a, the glasses half full rather than the empty kind of a person. That's her spirituality. Well, I certainly uh, appreciate what Pastor Morris said last night about John 4.24 and the call to uh, recognize that our God is spirit and that we're to worship him in spirit and in truth. Certainly that tells us that uh, when we hear that God is spirit, that uh, we understand that spirituality is a divine attribute and we recognize that, um, well, different systematic theologians organize things different ways, but uh, some put the fact that God is spirit at the first of communicable attributes, that God is spirit, but he also creates spiritual beings. Now we should recognize again, as we, if you're remembering from the previous uh, talk, that God alone is the, has being and everything else is becoming because he is the only one who is eternal. We hear in our standards that God is a spirit. And we should recognize that, of course, the Westminster Divines are not saying that he's one of 37 spirits, but he is that most pure spirit. So there is that uniqueness of the true and living God in his spiritual essence. And yet he communicates spiritual life to his creation. And it's helpful for us to see what scripture means when it speaks about spirit, and particularly God being the spirit. We should note that in the Hebrew ruach and the Greek pneuma, both have the synonymous terms of spirit and wind. And from this we learn that wind is a power among material powers that seems to be most immaterial and invisible. Think of flying a kite. Uh, We don't see the wind, but you can feel the tug of the wind in the string, and you can observe the tug of the wind in the kite as it is moved uh, by the wind, and yet it's not visible to our eyes, the force of the the wind itself. And Jesus said in John 3, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from. So it's appropriate, it's fitting that we would speak about God as spirit, wind, because we do not see him. He is invisible. He is, uh, as we, again, by analogy, we look around and we see what is is that which is powerful that is least visible. And wind, uh, breath, uh, serves as an analogy of that. Wind or breath also serves as the mark of life. It stands for life. So God's spirituality means that he is... refers to his living activity. We recognize that without the animating work of God's spirit, our flesh is powerless, lifeless. But the spirit lives and moves. So we have the exhortation, uh, the, the real distinction between the life of the spirit and the powerlessness of the flesh in, in so many places. Jeremiah 17, verse 5, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. So often aren't we tempted to trust that which is visible, that we can see right before us, but the Lord says, don't trust, don't rely in flesh in so many ways, but rely upon me, 
the one who is the living spirit. Wind, again, breath also speaks about spiritual or uh, spiritual life. The breath of life belongs with that which uh, it animates and it activates. So God is the enlivener. He is the source of life for his creation. And that's true naturally and spiritually. We think of God breathing into Adam, that life-giving spirit. But there is also a a spiritual sense where you and I are lost in sin and trespasses, and the regenerating work of the Spirit enlivens us. We are regenerated. So, naturally, man in his flesh is powerless and has no life in himself. We are spiritually dead, but we look to the Lord, who is the Spirit, to give us life and his power. Now, as we think again about God as Spirit, we remember what Jesus said in Luke 24, verse 39, that uh, handle me and see a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. We're reminded here again of how the attributes of God are interpenetrate. They're related to one another. They're, they're interdependent, as it were. So that even uh, the previous hour, we were looking at the unity, the simplicity of God. Here, this sloshes over into the doctrine of the spirituality of God. He is the first cause because he is not composed of matter. If he were composed of matter, again, he would be a dependent being and he would be an imperfect being because he would be a fragile being. But because God is spirit and he's not, he, is, he is not composed of any matter, he can't wear out, he can't disintegrate, he can't break, he can't fail to fulfill. Now, he is invisible. Now, when you think of being invisible, what comes to mind? Maybe uh, it's, uh, you think of uh, uh, the superpower of a hero. Or maybe if you're a little more somber, you're thinking um, the feeling of being neglected or unimportant. Recently, um, read a a blog by a young lady said, in her job, she feels invisible, not really being appreciated. But of course, that's not what the takeaway from the doctrine of the invisibility of God. The fact is that he is uh, immaterial. He is not composed of, of parts. And we need to recognize that. That's not a liability. That is, uh, that is a blessing for us to be assured that our God is not made of component parts, but he is eternal in his perfection. And so the Lord says in Exodus 33, verse 20, you cannot see me and live. He said that to Moses as he prepared to put Moses um, in a place where he could only see his hind parts, as it were, his diminished glory. And we know that we are not to fashion images of God that we might worship them, for we hear in Deuteronomy 4, verse 12, that through uh, Moses the Lord commanded that When the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire, you heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And so God did not reveal himself in form. In the Gospel of John, John's prologue, kind of the crescendo of that. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. 
He has made him known. Now here's the marvel and the, the challenge to our minds and again the confrontation with our finite reasoning is the fact that we have this God, this spiritual being, perfect in his essence, who is invisible, and yet he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And there's, it seems like there's this eschatological progression from the invisibility of God in the Old Testament to his being made visible in the New Testament. We still have affirmations. John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God, and yet God makes himself known in Jesus Christ. Again, the New Testament affirmation that God is invisible. 1 Timothy 1, verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible. You've probably heard that and sung it a few times this week. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And Paul, again, in, later on in Timothy, chapter 6, verses 15 and 16 he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, not just past, future, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And so it, uh, it really does confront our our finite reasoning, when we hear of this God who is invisible, and yet he reveals himself. I love um, how the Apostle Paul, as he's, he's just about to speak about the reality of our weakness, and um, would be surprising that a potter would find this fascinating, that uh, we have this treasure of the gospel in these uh, bodies, which are like and made, uh, described analogously as earthenware vessels, uh, not fine porcelain vases, uh, cheap earthenware that is prone to fracture and, and uh, disintegration. But in these mortal bodies that are weak and frail, the eternal gospel, the, the life of Jesus Christ living in us individually and corporately, John will say later in 1 John 4, that no one has ever seen God but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So the reality of God's transforming grace is evident in our lives as he lives in us and changes us. But I love how Paul didn't want to get away from first, Second Corinthians 4, verse 6. Um, and he speaks about the God who called light out of darkness has shown in our hearts that we would see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we are not left in a situation that we cannot see this God, but we see him, Jesus Christ, who is given for us. Now here again, there's the tension of what we hear and what we can understand. Because God remains invisible. And yet think of the introduction to John's first epistle. It is stoked with the zeal and awe of what has been seen and heard and handled and touched and observed, this Jesus. 
And so we have this mystery. How can we talk about the God who is invisible, and yet we can talk about that which is from the beginning, and we saw it, and we heard it, and we handled it, and we touched it. And I wished I had some wonderful formula to explain it all to you in a very simple and clear way. But here I come to that place where I acknowledged, well, kind of before we officially started, that we're not rationalists and we're not mystics. We dare not say, well, I'm never going to understand it completely, so I'm just going to shelve this. But to wrestle with this and to recognize God has said clearly and unalterably his divine essence is invisible. It is without parts. And the marvel to us is that the second person of the Trinity, sharing all the perfections of the Father and the Spirit, took to himself a human nature. Sometimes people say became man, and we need to understand that he didn't morph into something else. He didn't lose his deity, but to that deity was brought in union his second full nature, his full humanity, like us in every way, apart from our sin. How can the human nature be brought in union with the divine nature? If you have a great answer for that, there will probably be a question and answer afterwards, and um, we would love to hear that. What we need to do is simply recognize that this is what our God affirms. And one way, and I guess this would also be why I have an addition to what I said earlier, that we're not mystics and we're not rationalists. Um, I so, uh, so appreciate brilliant, gifted theologians who lead us in a greater knowledge of the Lord. And it's humbling to read them. At times we wrestle with them, but we're blessed in that. And in multiple ways, I've been blessed by John Murray. And in the context of this conversation, one thing that's a particular blessing to me is uh, probably many of you have this four-volume set of his collected writings. And, maybe, uh, and a number of you would be familiar. I think my favorite volume is volume two. That's where there are so many great uh, essays in there. And uh, the one that just, for me, stands out uh, uh, so wonderfully is on free agency. And what the subject matter is dealing with the uh, affirmations of God's sovereignty, his divine sovereignty, and also our human responsibility. And I so appreciate how he, in true Scottish fashion, he, he elucidates these doctrines in such a clear, orderly, fluent, brilliant way. And he comes to about three-quarters of the way through the arguments of the affirmation of the sovereignty of God and personal responsibility, and then he acknowledges, and I, I'm not quoting him um, directly because my, my Scottish accent isn't that good. But basically what he says is Scripture affirms God's complete sovereignty. And Scripture affirms humanity's complete responsibility. 
do I, John Murray says, understand that completely? Does that, can, can my head get around that? No. And he says, when we come to this place where we have affirmations from Scripture that do not, we cannot jam into our tiny little minds, we are left with some options. And one is, and so many do, discount one and accentuate the other. And you and, and, you and I rub elbows with so many family in the Lord who, in their minds, diminish the sovereignty of God that they would accentuate their own personal responsibility. And you also, you, you may have met some, as I have, who have mishandled the doctrine of the sovereignty of God as if to suggest that we are not responsible. So that why bother with witnessing to the lost? If they're elect, they'll come. And that's a discounting of personal responsibility and a warping of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. But I love what Marie concludes. When I am confronted with these affirmations that do not fit my finite human reasoning, I will not discount one and emphasize the other, or discount the, that one and emphasize the other, but I must in humility acknowledge that I am a creature, and I cannot comprehend them, but I, will, I dare not deny them. And so when we come to the mystery of the Incarnation, that the invisible God took to himself a full human nature with body, hearts, passion. Do we understand that? No. Will it fit inside here? No. Am I to believe it? Are you to believe it? Yes. And what calls us to believe it is the one who tells us this is absolutely perfect. He's the one whose wisdom is perfect in its love and justice, and mercy, and compassion, and faithfulness. He holds these attributes all in perfection, and so we can trust him. And we must, in humility, come before him and acknowledge that you are the creator, and I will always be the creature. You will always be before me, that I would be in awe of you, in your majesty, and your wonder. So Jesus calls us to recognize that God is spirit, and those that worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And I love the way Pastor Morris unpacked the fact that we don't worship in one place or another. Neither do we simply think, well, since it doesn't matter where the, we don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem, I can just worship God on the golf course, right? Or I can worship him on the beach. And uh, you can give glory to God on the beach, sure, but, to, um, but you need to be assembled with the body of Christ in corporate worship, to hear his word proclaimed, to see the sacraments administered. Now, we could say that there's a metaphorical sense in which we see Jesus, whom we do not see. We see him in the sacraments, the means of grace, don't we? We see by sensible signs the reality that he has united us to himself in the waters of baptism. We see the fact of his suffering, his death for our redemption, for our cleansing, 
for the forgiveness of our sins. We see that displayed in the Lord's table. And as surely as we take the bread and drink the wine, so surely as we receive the grace of our Lord. Not because the elements have changed, but because God is present spiritually. He's present by his spirit. And yet we have this great mystery that God blesses us spiritually through these sensible signs. Jesus says God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so we recognize that when we come to worship, we must do so with a heart of devotion, not of duty. We come to worship the Lord in faith, hope, and love. We come to worship our God being confident in his amazing grace to us. We come to worship him because he has loved us and we are called to to adore him. Love must be demonstrated in spiritual worship. There must be a spiritual desire to be nourished and strengthened in the Lord. And worship that is in spirit and truth will be worship that is full of thankfulness and adoration. It'll be worship that is given in delight because of the marvel of our glorious God, the God who is spirit, not of failing component parts, but the God who is eternal. And worship that is in spirit and in truth will be with delight in awesome reverence of our God. We know in the breadth of the church there are those that um, seem to excel more in an enthusiasm, and there are others that seem to uh, tend more to uh, an introspection. And we need both. We need both that humility before the Lord where in reverence we, we come and say, we, we are here because we love you. And we recognize that we're only here because you made us and you've redeemed us. And we marvel at that. But we are also consumed with the joy of your salvation as well as the, the reverence of your holy awesomeness. So this is a call then from the Lord to worship in spirit and in truth. And we can come with such delight because our God is perfect. To recognize that our God is spirit means he cannot be compromised or defiled by anything of matter. He cannot be compromised or or defiled because he is spirit. Because he is spirit, because he is the creator, he is the one who is active, and he communicates, and you and I depend upon his word. We don't live by bread alone, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Because he is spirit, he is not finite, but he is immortal. And because he is spirit, we can only commune with him spiritually by the renewed life he's given us, that Holy Spirit indwelling us. And to realize that our calling in this world is to put off all that which would defile us spiritually. 
that we would look forward to the resurrection of the body and the conformity of this body to the glorious resurrection body of Jesus Christ. As, um, as we grow older, is that 5 or 10 or gone? 11.45. Oh, okay. As we grow older, the promise that the Lord is going to make all things new becomes ever sweeter. We need to hang on that completely. The knowledge that our God can fulfill that promise is certain because our God is spirit. Amen. Anything else else to do? Okay. So, parents, then, that would be the effectual call for you to go collect your children.